Chapter 11 Getting Beneath the Surface The Suffering of Job Working with a Plan For the sake of our analysis of the story of Job and its message about fairness in the world, we may take a more considered view of this angel of adversarialism as being a messenger that entreats us to question and test our assumptions. The messenger does this not only to prove that our assumptions are wrong, but rather to establish at times why and how it is that they are right. It also brings home the idea that bad things can happen to good people using an extreme argument, as with Job, that the worst things can happen to the best people. So, back in heaven we have Satan telling God that he believes the only reason Job is so pious is because God has blessed him and that were God to take away all of the nice things that Job has, he would most certainly reveal his true colors, as it were. God believes otherwise but decides to entertain this bet with Satan and gives Satan the freedom to wreak utter havoc in Job's life, with a proviso that Job himself is not touched. Just to make sure we really get the idea about what a good person Job is, we're told that just moments before the calamity strikes, he is at home going about his usual task of providing food for his less fortunate neighbors. Job's children are enjoying a magnificent feast at the home of Job's eldest son, and while Satan, as God's lab assistant, makes haste to set about concocting the series of calamities that will turn Job into an un witting experimental subject to test the proofs of a divine hypothesis. Quote, and there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job, and said, The oxen were ploughing, and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them, and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, and rent his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground, and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. End quote. Job 1, verses 13 to 22, King James Bible. Why me? At this point, some may feel that perhaps Job lost his mind in grief and his shock was causing him to react in a typical way that someone does when they experience cognitive dissonance. 
It was the social psychologist Neon Festinger who gave us our earliest insight into the whole phenomena of cognitive dissonance when he showed experimentally that if people are presented with facts that contradicted their beliefs, they would, in many instances, go so far as to misrepresent reality using rationalizations and confabulations to deny the evidence and reinforce their beliefs, however erroneous. In Festinger's book, When Prophecy Fails, he tells about a cult that believed a prophecy that foretold that a UFO would come to collect them on a certain day at a certain time. As the story goes, these aliens were going to destroy Earth, but the cult members would be saved because of their belief. When the appointed time came, and there was no UFO or Earth-ending event, this did not, as we might suppose, cause them to realize the error of their ways, or come to terms with the fact that they were hoaxed or conned out of all of their money. The cult members quickly confabulated and rationalized that the aliens had actually given Earth a second chance, and that it was now the cult members' duty to go and spread the gospel about the fact that Earthlings should stop hurting the planet or the aliens would be back to destroy us all. The same phenomena happens with individuals who enter apocalyptic doomsday cults that prophesy the coming of God and the rapture. When these events do not occur as preordained, the cult members' construal mechanisms, as discussed early in Chapter 4 under the subheading A Malaise of Misconstruals, for the need to be right, belong, and feel good, are so active that they will collectively galvanize in a deluded bubble of consensual reality. According to Chris Korminitsky in his 2014 article, Cognitive Dissonance and the Resurrection of Jesus, which was published in the 4th R magazine, this may have been what happened to a small cult in the Middle East whose leader told them that the kingdom of God was at hand, but then ended up being killed before any of the promises came to fruition. As for Job, was he merely petrified and thus prostrating himself out of sheer terror? Was he basically just cowering in submission? It could be said, too, that there is a sense in which Job is displaying a confidence in God and in God's will, that even in the face of this calamity he feels he need not or even may not question God's will. Whichever interpretation one takes, Perhaps there is another psychological narrative running behind the scenes. Could the story of Job be an early attempt at what would later become the Swiss psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's thesis of the five stages of grief, expounded in her 1969 book On Death and Dying? Quote, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. End quote. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross The stages of grief, according to Kubler-Ross, are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Job may well have been experiencing denial, 
Denial is characterized by individuals believing that somehow a mistake has been made and things are not as they seem. They find refuge in clinging to a false version of reality. For the sake of our process, I will not be making an in-depth study of this postulation, but I believe it is useful in our reading of Job to occasionally overlay this model to assist us in looking at things from another perspective. Double-double toil and trouble. It is at this point that Satan feels he really has to turn on the heat. After all, maybe Job did not really care much for his children or his possessions, meaning that the experiences still did not test Job's love for God. Maybe Job only wanted to save his own skin, so if he were to be brought low personally, if he were to be afflicted on his person, then surely his self-love would prove to be greater than his love for God. Quote, and Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. End quote. Job chapter 2 verses 4 to 6. King James Bible. There was going to be no pulling punches in this round. Quote, so went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal and sat down among the ashes. End quote. Job chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. King James Bible. This affliction was somewhat of a double whammy, as this was not just some internal suffering that Job might have been able to hide. On the contrary, this was an affliction that was not only meant to bring excruciating pain to Job, but it also meant that he would be looked upon with disgust. It put an instant distance between himself and anything that might have brought him some sort of comfort or acceptance. With running sores on his hands, even the most basic forms of sustenance and comfort were turned into something heinous if he touched it. Oh, for heaven's sake! It is at this point that the last vestige of emotional comfort his wife is also dashed. She is so bitterly anguished that she is not only angry with God, but is also so angry with Job for not being angry with God that she fights with him. Quote, then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. End quote. Job chapter 2 verse 9 King James Bible. What is actually going on here is that we are being given a further example of Job's extreme piety or denial as it is seen to overshadow that of the person closest to him, his wife. Now, before we lambaste his wife for being shallow and self-serving, let us not forget that his wife has unwittingly figured out what is actually going on here. She has correctly identified that it was indeed his integrity, his piety, that was the cause of all of this. Perhaps we may even read a bit of mercy in her telling him that he should curse God and die, and in that way relieve his suffering, because surely if his piety did not prevent him from getting into the situation, then it was not going to be the thing to get him out of it. 
This scene seems to be set up to counsel us to be aware that the cause of a thing may strangely enough also be the cure for a thing. We just need to think a little bit about the arduousness of pursuing a very difficult goal. The determination, the unwavering belief, the spartan living circumstances it may induce, the failings, losses and challenges that it involves. It is most often in the darkest hour that the voice of despair rises up and says, Look at all these hardships you have because of this. Give it up. Determined not to be deterred. So the strength that we are seeing emerge here in Job is not piety. As this has already been established, we are witnessing perseverance born from determination. As it turns out, determination is a very positive emotional coping strategy to employ when we're faced with hardships or obstacles. Although outward appearances may make it seem like determination is an attitude or a state of mind, it is not. Empirical evidence supports the fact that determination is actually an emotion. The field of positive psychology is where most of the studies on determination have been conducted. And what they have found is that like fear, disgust, anger, surprise, happiness and contempt, determination even has its own facial expression, which includes furrowing the eyebrows. The reason it is deemed to be a positive emotion is that it is a state in which one is driven to take action and particularly actions directed at overcoming obstacles. Determination brings with it the capacity to learn new coping skills and deal with various challenging situations. Some major theories have been developed around determination and although each one focuses on a particular aspect of this fascinating emotion, taken collectively they paint a very comprehensive picture of this valuable emotional phenomena. It is not hard to see that determination will fall into the research domain of motivational studies. And it is from this field that we have what is known as self-determination theory, SDT. It has been discovered that motivation is directly impacted by the interplay between individual personalities and social contexts. When people are in environments that foster autonomy, such as being able to relate to the people around you and getting positive feedback from them, being in a stable environment or having the options and competence to tackle the task at hand, they result in high levels of determination. This explains why one's sense of determination may falter when more and more of these things are lacking in one's environment. There is also a physiological reaction when people experience the emotion of determination. When an individual is introduced to a challenging task and becomes determined to finish whatever task is at hand, they will experience an increase in systolic blood pressure. They will also have increased heart rate, yet have a relaxation of the coronary vasculature. It could be described as a state in which there is relaxed arousal. In what is known as the appraisal theory, special consideration is given to what it is that actually elicits the mood. This brings us back to the essence of this book. As it turns out, determination is driven by the evaluations and appraisals people make of the circumstances around them and what meaning things have for them. This in turn will drive an emotional response like fear, anger or determination. The next driver of determination is therefore relevance. 
Here we take a longer view of the situation and our part in it. This is the arena of goals, ideals and aspirations. The more relevant the situation to us, the more inclined we will be to become determined. The third component of appraisal theory is whether we believe we have the skills to cope with what needs to be done and our planning towards achieving a particular end. The empirical grounding for determination being classified as an emotion comes from research done on direct brain stimulation. It turns out that the anterior mid-cingulate cortex actually elicits a response that mirrors determination. In case studies with individuals who had epileptic seizures that affected these regions, the subjects reported that they felt very determined to overcome particular challenges that were presented to them and that the feeling they had was, in fact, a very pleasant one. There is even some recent research by M. Katzer, T. Al, N. Marion and Y. Kessler that lends credence to the old saying, pride comes before the fall. Their findings were reported in an article entitled Imagined Positive Emotions and Inhibitory Control, The Differentiated Effect of Pride versus Happiness, published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, learning, memory and cognition. When studies were performed to compare the effects of determination and the effects of pride on perseverance, it turned out that pride actually decreased task management and perseverance relative to a neutral condition, whereas determination increased perseverance the most out of all other positive emotions. The Fire of Ire Armed with these insights, perhaps we'll be able to probe the mind and motivations of Job. Job's response to his wife's suggestion of theological euthanasia does not come from a place of pride, though. Quote, but he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish woman speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. End quote. Job Chapter 2, verse 10, King James Bible. Job does not want to curse God to be put out of his misery. Rather, he curses a life on which such misery can be afflicted. He is determined then to persevere, and he believes that what is happening to him, though senseless, can at some other time offer him some sense of meaning, even if it's just relevant to his own existence. If he is choosing to be determined, then he has in fact enlisted the help of a very positive, powerful emotion during the time of his greatest affliction. Keeping in mind that this emotion of determination shares the facial expression of Kubler-Ross's second stage of grief, the emotion of anger. Considering the vehemence with which he is cursing his own life, anger seems to be well and truly present.